Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Last Sunday, I, uh, I started a short series. I thought it was going to be two messages. It might be a few more than that. We'll see. But it was about what it means to be a disciple. And I was basing it off of this call of Jesus after he rose from death. He met with his disciples, his closest followers, and he gave them a commission. We call it the Great Commission, where he gave them their central mission in this life. Uh, I feel like I'm echoing a lot. Do you guys, are you guys hearing that? I'm sorry. From up here, it sounds like I'm in the bottom of a swimming pool. Um, it's often referred to as the Great Commission. This was the risen Lord saying, if you're confused at all what you're supposed to do with your life, here it is in simple language, go and make disciples. And he said to do this by baptizing people and by teaching them to obey everything he has commanded. And last Sunday, we looked at the first part of that baptism and I I didn't know that there was so much to say about baptism, but there's a lot to say because we celebrate what baptism represents. Baptism as an act by itself accomplishes nothing, but it points to something tremendous. And the reason we begin the discipleship journey with baptism is that this act symbolizes what God has done for us. Before we bring anything to the table in our commitment, our efforts and obedience, we have to understand that Christian life begins with an acknowledgement that God did something for us, which we could not do for ourselves. You've heard it said that God, Jesus did not come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. I think there's truth to that, but I would say this way. He came to make dead people alive and then to make those alive people more like him, more like subjects under his great rule so that the world would become more the world he intended when he made it. We begin the Christian journey not with something we said or did, but acknowledgement of something Jesus did on our behalf, which foundationally changed everything within us. This morning, I want to cover the second half of that, this teaching us to obey everything he's commanded. The passage I want to draw from today is Matthew 28, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's one word in the Greek, but it's interesting that our English translations put these, this central command as make disciples. Anyone who knows me well knows that I don't do food prep, not because I'm lazy, but because I don't know how. I, my relationship with food is entirely down to eating it and cleaning up after. That's all I know how to do around food. I don't know how to make it. 
But I don't say to Jeannie, hey, could you go find me a sandwich? I ask her to make me one because sandwiches don't just grow and appear. They have to be assembled. When we talk about making something, it means that it doesn't exist in the wild. It's not a naturally occurring phenomenon. When you're called to make something, it reveals that it will not happen without intervention. Because it's an unnatural, uncommon thing that goes against the grain of entropy and just the, the, the state of the universe as it exists. So Jesus says that when it comes to followers of Jesus, the word that, that, uh, that the Bible calls disciple, that's not something you just find in the world. But disciples are raised, they are made through direct intervention. Jesus begins that work by turning someone who is rejecting him into someone who has a yearning to follow him, to know him, to come under his rule, to be saved by him. But then he says, you have to go from that place to aligning your whole life with his plan for us. What he says is important to him. It's not that hard to admire Jesus it's not that hard even to agree with Jesus, but maybe you've learned like I have that it's a whole other story to follow Jesus. I think that happened all my life growing up in church. I would sit in church and listen to sermons, and some of them kept me awake the whole time, and you know, some of them didn't. But the ones I stayed awake for, I would say, you know, I, I admire the God this guy's talking about. And I agree with almost everything that was said. And then I'd go home in this state of agreement and admiration. And my life would just keep ticking along. And I would hear sermons about self-control, about kindness, about mercy, about sacrifice. And I'd just keep on living the way I was. And I realized it's not that hard to admire or agree with Jesus. But it's really hard to actually follow him. I think if you stay in the church long enough, you develop a mindset that is, I'm here to see if I agree or not. But the real goal of every message, every sitting in front of the word of God, is for him to draw out of us an alignment with what he is saying so that our lives become the proof that we fully accept what he has just said to us. And because it's not natural and it's not easy to follow the sayings of Jesus, his sayings are beautiful, they're inspiring, but man, they are so hard. Even when he was on the earth, many people who began the journey of following Jesus gave up on him. There's an interesting passage in John chapter 6, starting at verse 64. It says, Jesus is talking to people who consider themselves his followers. They'd started this journey, and he said to them, Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And then, and I always thought this was strange, John 6, 6, 6. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You recall last Sunday that we pointed out only 11 showed up to the mountain that Jesus told his disciples to meet him at because Judas was no longer with them. Stark reminder, not everyone who starts the journey finishes. And even while he was on the earth in the flesh, people gave up on him 
Because it's one thing to admire Jesus, and it's a whole other thing to actually follow him. These 11, his closest followers and friends, gathered at the mountain that he had prearranged, and they see him risen from death, and so understandably, they worship him. They want to be around him. They'd missed him. They thought he was a goner. Never going to see him again. And there he is with them in the flesh. And then he proclaims his authority over everything. And then he says to them these, this word, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You know, gathering in worship is always a good thing. But Jesus reminds us that we're not supposed to stay there forever. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Most English translations make that word go sound like an imperative command. In fact, this verse has been used for so many mobilizations of missionary endeavors. Because it's very compelling to hear the word, therefore go, and I picture Jesus pointing, and everyone's like, let's go. But that's not actually the way that the thing is phrased. It's actually a participle, and it's a a passive participle. The better way to, to translate that word is as you are going or having gone. The idea is this. And by the way, using this verse for missionary work is not inappropriate because Jesus himself did say, make this, go and make disciples of all nations. You can't go from Jerusalem to all nations without going. So going is implied. Part of it is about the movement, but that's not really the focus. He says, as you are going, this ongoing action. In other words, what he's saying is, this is a way of living. It's not a project or a program. It's not a distinct thing or an activity. It's a way of arranging your whole life so that your one overarching mission, wherever you find yourself, is this calling to make disciples. The focus here is not on the movement itself, but what we do as we move. Life is movement. It's constant movement. But it's what we do while we're moving that matters. An implication of this idea, and think about this, okay? All of life is moving. Things move you to go from one place to another, one encounter to another, one activity to another. We rarely park ourselves in one situation or one place. We have to move across rooms, across neighborhoods, sometimes just reaching across the table. Sometimes, like we did this summer, we go reach across oceans to other countries. The movement is presumed, but what Jesus is concerned with is as he moves us from place to place, what effect are we having as we go? Now, if... Making disciples is an activity that accompanies us wherever we go. Then another consequence of this, another implication of this is it cannot be something restricted to church programs. Growing up, I thought discipleship was entirely a thing that happened when I was at church. Even that idea of that phrase, at church, is strange. I think it would have been foreign to Jesus in his time. Going to church, I'm at church. Because he didn't see church as a place, a location with distinct programs and bricks and mortar. He saw church as a gathering of people, a community, a kingdom. 
It, we, we don't go to church. We are the church. That was the New Testament's teaching. And yet I grew up raised on this idea that discipleship is what I do at church. Now, if you're pretty committed, you might find yourself at church, whatever that means to you. I don't, I don't Let's throw a number out. Maybe like six hours a week. That's if you're pretty committed you're serving, you're at church, maybe a little early, setting something up. You linger for a while, eat the snacks. You don't rush home. Maybe there's a small group activity. Maybe there's a ministry team meeting. But the average committed person maybe finds themselves at church six hours a week. Now, if I presume you're a normal, healthy person, you sleep eight hours a day, you've got about 112 waking hours in the week. If you're at church six hours a week, you know what that means is... That's only 5% of your waking life. You're at church for 5% of your waking life. If what happens in discipleship is restricted to that setting, what do you do with the other 95% of your life? That you're actually conscious and awake. Does Jesus have a place, a calling for us in that 95%? Let's say you're an insane person and you're at church 12 hours a week. Some of you are out there, you, you're not just committed, you're like, oh, you're seriously committed. Even if you're here 12 hours a week, you still have 90% of your waking life outside of the setting. And, and discipleship, if it's about what we do as we are going, absolutely has to do with that 90%. It's really 100%, but 90% of our waking as you're going life is lived outside of the church setting. And that's the place where so much of what we call discipleship is meant to happen. Following the way of Jesus, becoming like him, contributing to and living in his kingdom happens in the waking spaces and hours outside of church as much as in church. Every movement in our lives going from activity to activity, place to place, person to person is an opportunity to follow Jesus a further implication of this is that if you're only here for 5 to 10% of your waking life, then disciple-making cannot be an activity done primarily or just by the leaders and pastors of the church. If it's my job to make disciples of everyone here, I've only got 5% of your life to do it. I'm never going to succeed. And there's so many of you and one of me, even if we multiply to other leaders, we're not together that much of the time. The majority of your lives are spent not with church people, but with many other people who fill your life, who are the fabric of your existence. And all these things that we're called to do in the name of disciple making, being disciples and making disciples, it happens in that fabric of your everyday life. It is not primarily an activity done by the leaders of the church, but it is an activity done by the people of God. To one another. You know, by most counts, there are 59 one another commands in the New Testament. What that tells me is you can't really be a Christian by yourself. You guys know that I, um, I'm crazy about pickleball. I, I might actually have a problem. I might have to go to Pickler's Anonymous because when I'm at work, if I don't have something I'm really engrossed in, I'm sitting there thinking about pickleball. Like, I wish I was out there playing. The other day, I left the office a little early at 4. I just couldn't take it. I had to play some pickleball. So I, I'm a member of a club. 
I, I can get court time for free. So I go to this club. I'm all excited. I'm like, somebody's got to be there. I walk in. I kid you not. Like 10 courts. I'm the only person in the whole building. I'm sitting there with my bag, my paddle, my balls, and I'm all rearing to go. And I realize, like, this is so late. I hit a couple balls against the wall. And I'm like, I'm leaving. And I realize that that's the truth for most sports. You can be passionate about it. You can't really, you can train, you can practice, but you can't actually play by yourself. It's meaningless. It's nonsense. You can't Christian alone. It's not really possible when so much of what is asked of us is framed as one another's. 59 of them in the New Testament alone. How can we make discipleship something that only leaders do when so much of the Christian faith is what we do with and for and to one another in the process of following Jesus and helping one another grow in Christ? I'm going to develop that idea much more in a future sermon, so I don't want to belabor it here. But really, we need to to accept this idea that disciple-making is a ministry of the people of God, not just the leaders of the church. Now, you'll notice that Jesus says it very strangely here. He doesn't say, teach them everything I've commanded. The Asian in me wishes that's what he said, because then I could study that. It's just a textbook. He said a bunch of stuff. It's written in a book. That's all I need. Give me the book. Give me a journal. I got it. And I'll take notes, highlight it, color code it, because I can memorize all the commands of Jesus. If that's all he said, wouldn't that be nice? But he didn't say, teach them everything I commanded. He said, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. What does he really mean when he says that? What's the challenge of obeying everything Jesus commanded? Is it like he says, you know, don't, don't be unforgiving. Be forgiving to people. Don't judge others. Don't be a hypocrite. When he says all those things, are you sitting there going, I don't know what that means. Someone explain to me how to forgive. Someone explain to me how not to be a hypocrite. Our, our challenge is not understanding. It's not cognitive. The hard part of the commands of Jesus is not understanding them. It's accepting them. That's really hard part. And then having accepted, the next challenge is actually carrying it out. That's where the struggle exists. Jesus is a simple guy. His commands were really simple. They're compelling. Even children can be inspired by them. But it's not understanding that's the difficulty. It's the accepting of it. I know I'm supposed to forgive. And I know I'm supposed to humble myself and ask for forgiveness. But in both those situations, I have struggled mightily in my life because I'm sinful and proud. So have you, right? Don't leave me hanging. I can't be the only person who's living in a state of unforgiveness in this building right now. There's no way. You don't struggle with knowledge, do you? Do I need to make it any clearer what Jesus had to say about forgiveness? It's it's not here. It's here that the real struggle takes place. So when he says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded, he's not talking about instruction or catechism. It's not information. It's transformation. You've heard that trite saying, but it's so true. He's saying, be out there wrestling with and contending with people so that their lives, their hearts, their hands and feet can accept and carry out 
the commands of Jesus. Because it does not come naturally to us in this broken world. It is so much easier, so much more satisfying most of the time not to do what Jesus said. Can I be honest with you? When I'm watching an action movie and someone has radically betrayed someone else, I don't want a Jesus story to play out. That's a boring movie for me. I want that great vengeance moment when the hero finally goes, after all the bad stuff you did, here's what you get. And he doesn't even just stab him slowly. Just make the guy suffer. That's what we want. We want to see that kind of justice. The bad guy getting what he deserves. No forgiveness, just retribution, revenge. That's soothing for the human heart. That's what we long for. It is clearly not the way of Jesus. You can't find any way to torture the Bible to make it the way of Jesus. We're not confused about that, but think about how hard it is to accept this strange way of living in the world. And so Jesus calls us to join with one another in the struggle because the teaching of Jesus is beautiful and inspiring, but it runs directly against the grain of our human nature. I can understand him so easily, but it's the work of a lifetime to accept what he's saying. And every last one of us in this room will struggle and we will stray. There's not one of us, including the guy who has to stand up here and preach at you. I struggle every Sunday to preach because the stuff that I'm saying, I'm messed up in. It's a really weird job. You ought to try it sometime. (laughs) It picks at the scab of every insecurity and uncertainty you have in your spirit. Because I know who I am. And I also know that I struggle as much as anyone. Every one of us will stray from the way of Jesus. We will not want to, but we will inevitably. And when and especially we stray and we struggle, that's when we most need one another. And it's important that we step into each other's lives when we see someone struggling. When you see a person you love who has committed to follow Jesus, but they are straying away or struggling from him, it is not loving to stand by and watch it happen and do and say nothing. That's not love. I've heard people say, oh, don't be mean, just leave the guy alone. That's not loving to watch someone you care about go in a path that is destructive to themselves or unfaithful to a commitment they made in their own hearts. That's not love. And yet most people will not go there. Only your true friends, your true brothers and sisters will take up that invitation to go to that hard place with you. Can we just admit, when you see someone really going astray, the the thought in your mind is, I should say something, but who needs that kind of drama? And so what many of us will do is, I'm sure someone else will say something, I'm not going to get involved. Do you need that extra strife in your life? Most of us won't go there. And when someone does, it is an act of love and risk that they're doing because they actually care about us. And so the fact that we do it is so important. But when you step into the life of someone who is struggling or straying in their following Jesus, it's not just that you do it. It's how you do it that matters so supremely. The New Testament is filled with verses 
that guide us on how to help someone else find their way back to the way of Jesus. Let me read two examples to you. Uh, What happened here? Okay, here's one. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James is affirming what we've just said, that when we see someone straying or struggling and we return them back to the way of Jesus, it pleases the heart of God and it's not something that everyone will do, but it's something that God honors. But here's Galatians 6.1, how we do it matters. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person Gently, But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Here's Ephesians 4.2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. When it is your burden to step into someone's life, to help them get into alignment with the way of Jesus. When you see a friend, a loved one, struggling and straying away, it's important that you take the step to intervene, but when you do it, the character, the way, your posture, your, your demeanor is so important, and it all rises from a heart that is truly gentle and humble and patient and motivated by love. If you... Check yourself, and those are not the fuel that is burning in your heart. It's better you don't say anything or get involved at all. It's better to remain passive and silent than to step in clumsily in a spirit not of gentleness, but of of violence emotionally, of judgment, of pride, of impatience, and even hatred. If that's what's fueling you, if you just can't stand the sight of this person, it's better for the sake of Jesus that you remain quiet and on the sideline. Many who are parents have discovered this principle, this law of spiritual physics, experientially. It's been very soothing to step in and just rip your kid a new one and walk away, drop the mic, and you see how much damage ensues and how little change happens. And you're like, that felt really good for five minutes and really awful for 50 years. <laughs> you do so much damage when you speak without these things driving you. I have done damage and had damage done to me by people who spoke into my life without gentleness and humility and love and patience. We've all been there. When you take the step to do it, make sure that those are the things that are fueling your desire to intervene. Let me give one last admonition about that. If you're the one giving the teaching, the the, the aligning with the teaching of Jesus, remember the words of 2 Timothy 3.16. This had to be a memory verse on everyone's list at some point, right? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I cannot stress this enough. 
If you're going to intervene in a struggling Christian's life, base your intervention on the Word of God. I've made so many mistakes violating this principle. Our goal is to turn them back to God's will, not ours. And it's so easy to confuse the two. Because I also, as a human being, have opinions and preferences and prejudices in my heart. Things that I prefer, which I then make sacred. I say, that's the right way to do it. It's my way, but it's also the right way. If it doesn't agree with or spring out of the word of God, then all I'm doing is taking a struggling person and loading them with my prejudices, my opinions, my judgment, and that's not going to help them one bit. Maybe you don't like what your kid wore to school that day. Maybe you don't like the extracurricular activities they chose. Maybe you don't like the choice of boyfriend or girlfriend that your friend is making. Maybe you feel that person spends their money foolishly or is having one drink too many. I don't know what your issue is, but if it doesn't arise first and foremost from the Word of God, check yourself before you get involved. Because God says His Word, His words are sacred and powerful for the changing and reproving of a human life. Your words are not. My words are not. Our opinions and prejudices will change nobody. They have no power. But the words of God have power to produce change in people. And I'm not just talking about weaponizing Bible verses and throwing them at people. Don't you know this verse and this verse and this verse? Not that way. Show them. Open up scriptures and reveal God to them. Say, do you see that the Bible describes this, sweetheart, as true beauty? That's what I want for you. That's what God wants for you. Turn to Him. That's what God is asking of us, is to contend with one another using the powerful weapon of His Word, which never feels like a violent weapon, but it's a tremendous force to change the stubbornness of the human heart. So are you with me? If, you have, if you're in the position of helping someone find their way back, make sure that you overcome the hesitancy to not get involved. Get in there, be that person, but then do it with gentleness and humility, patience and love. Let those things be fueling you or stop getting involved right then. It's better to do nothing than to step in without those things. And when you do step in, let the word of God be the thing that drives the intervention, not your words. But I have a word to say to those on the receiving end of this as well. Because sometimes all of the, the rebuke, all of the, the, the instruction is given to the person who's just trying to step in and be helpful. And yeah, it's, it's possible to try to do the right thing the wrong way. But we also need to say something to those who are struggling because you're not violating other people. You're violating your own conscience. You decided to step out on this journey of following Jesus and you're struggling or straying from that. People who love you are helping you get back to who you also want to be. If you're on the receiving end and you all, we will all be there at some point. Someone will have to step in out of conviction and say something to us that helps us get back on track. When they do it, they're taking a huge risk, and most people won't go there. Don't punish a person who's willing 
to be that messenger in your life. You'll know who your real friends are because they stop tickling your ears at some point and say what has to be said. I've said this before, but every time I watch American Idol auditions, all I think is, doesn't this person have any friends? How could you let this person go on television and do that to themselves? They really, and and I'm not talking about the ones that are clearly put there by the producers. I'm talking about the people whose disappointment and shock is real. They're like, what? And Simon goes, oh, sweetie, you don't know how to sing. And they're like, what? I'm really good. You're like, oh, no. (laughs) I don't know anything about singing. You're not good. Doesn't that person have a single person in their life who will say it? When someone is willing to tell you the hard stuff, stop punishing them for doing that. Do you know how hard it is to rouse yourself and get involved in the struggle of another person? Humility and gentleness are important on the receiving side of this equation as well. Now, if the person is only offering their opinion or their judgment, feel free to reject them all day long. Okay, talk to the hand. Thank you very much for trying. It's okay to reject a person who's just bringing their flesh into your life. But if they're contending with you and for you to bring you back to Jesus himself, to his rule over your life, why are you fighting that person when they're fighting with you for something that mattered to you once? Why would you punish a person for trying? Listen to this verse, John 8, 47. Jesus says these words. Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Do you hear what he's saying? That the willingness and the capacity to hear even when a person is delivering the words, to recognize and hear the words and the voice of God, that willingness to receive his words is a proof of belonging to him. If you want to know whether you are born again, truly belonging to God, made new, one way to figure that out is, am I open to the words of God? I don't have to be open to the words of Pastor Dave or the words of any other person, but am I open at least to the words of God? Do I know how to hear that through all the human words? Because unless God talks to you audibly 99% of the time, he's going to talk to you through other people who will bring the word of God into your life. And the willingness and the ability to receive that word is a proof of belonging to God. If you're a parent and you have a kid who's just resisting everything you say, haven't you ever wanted to say, am I actually your dad or what? Are you my kid? Are we related? What is this exactly? Are you a tenant in my house? Am I your landlord? If I'm truly your father, does that mean nothing? Does that carry no weight? If you belong to God the Father, His words have to mean something to you, even when you're feeling far from Him. It's one way you know you belong. Let me wrap it up with a couple more practical admonitions, because I love the book of Proverbs. It just talks so straight. Solomon was not a guy who beat around the bush. Look at what he says. Proverbs 12.1. 
Whoever loves discipline, and discipline there is actually correction, loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. I know we taught our kids not to say the word stupid, but stupid's in the Bible. It's used as a, as a declaration. Here's the definition of stupid, is a person who hates correction. Oh, that's not the way to do it. Yeah, it is. All right. <laughs> Go on and be stupid. It's okay to say that to someone who's actually being biblically stupid. It's like, all right, I tried, but you seem very committed to protecting error. That's okay, I guess. I'm not saying give up. I'm saying this is a definition of stupid according to Scripture, is that someone tried to offer correction, and you just judoed them out of there. You Your kung fu at deflecting truth is so good. Because what we're saying really is, the only truth rises out of me. No one external to myself can offer truth. If I don't think it's true, it's not true. Such a person, according to scripture, is stupid. So I asked some reflective questions last Sunday. Let me ask, are are you or anyone you know stupid? I've been stupid. (laughs) I might be being stupid right now. I might have to do some reflection. But that's what stupid is. Proverbs 15.32 goes a step further. It says, this kind of resistance to correction is a form of self-hatred. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul. But he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. These proverbs and many others like them are saying one simple thing. If you shoot the messenger, you'll never know what's up. Don't be that person. Let me finish this way. Let me take a bigger view. What are we really talking about here when it comes to making disciples? Remember what we said last Sunday. Jesus didn't just step into your story, but you stepped into his by becoming a Christian. And in his story, he is king of kings and lord of lords. And that's not some theological high and lofty idea by itself. It's gritty. It's earthly. It's real and practical. Here's what that means. He has a design and a plan for reality that if it's carried out, everything becomes the way he wants. Everything becomes better. The world becomes the world he built. And the way that happens in this place is as one by one we become fully aligned with him, submitted to his rule. We live our lives the way he wants us to live them according to his plan and everything starts to click the way he intends. I have this picture of a coach. You know how like when when a, a team wins and the coach is like being hoisted up, you're like, he just stood on the side and what was his role exactly? Here's the important role coaches play. They see the bigger view. They have a strategy that players on the ground cannot really be mindful of. Players are reacting, they're executing, but the coach has the big picture in mind. And think about how frustrating it is for a coach who has a winning game plan, he knows he's got the personnel in place to get it done, but they just won't listen to him. 
He says, look, just stop going long. Short passes, cut, cut to a shorter route. We will win the game. Smash mouth football. Just three yards, six yards, we'll get it. And these guys keep going for the Hail Mary. And you're like, we could win with this team, but not if they don't listen to the coach. Each guy's trying to be a superstar. Each one thinks they know how to do it. But the coach has the view. And he would win the game if his players aligned themselves to his game plan. That, if you're not into sports, that just totally, you know, but look, and that makes sense to me. I picture Jesus looking at this world he made, yearning to see it different. And he's chosen for whatever reason to change it through us, to bring glory, to reveal himself through us. He wants families to be safe places. He wants marriages to be sacred covenants. He wants friendships to be satisfying and mutually edifying. He doesn't want to see anybody lose their life to violence or see their heart crushed through hatred. He doesn't want to see anybody starve to death, go hungry, have nothing when others have so much. This world is a mess, and it doesn't need to be the way it is. It's not the way God intended for it to be. So much junk is not the way it's supposed to be, but it can change. It will change one day radically, but it can begin changing now under the rule of Jesus. Because Christianity is a belief system, but it's much more than a belief system. Christianity is a way of life and a moral code, but it's much more than those things. Christianity is a kingdom in this real flesh and blood world under the rule of the king of kings. And under his rule, this place starts to look and smell and feel more the way he intended. So that even this world begins to reflect and to reveal him everywhere. This is our privilege, but we won't be a part of it if our lives are not in alignment to him. You can't live according to your own rule and want to participate in the kingdom he's making. That cannot happen. That is not biblical Christianity. You can call it Christianity, but it would not be that. It is something else altogether. Our privilege is to follow Jesus and in the following of Jesus, to remake reality in the pattern of Jesus. I can't think of a better way to spend the short blink of an eye you have on this earth than to live that way. Being and making followers of Jesus is the central mission that he gave all of us. It's our privilege. I'm asking you as I close today not simply to acknowledge or agree, but to accept that call over your life to begin with those closest to you, to begin also with yourself. Imagine how things could be if Jesus was not king in name only, but in truth, in reality, over all of us. Just imagine what we could do with him. I want to invite you to bow with me in prayer as the team comes up.
I suppose that even before we talk about making disciples, we need to reflect on whether we are disciples. Is my life satisfying by my standards, or am I living in alignment with the words of Jesus? Is there something in my life I've grown used to just having there that's broken? That I need to make right because this is not the way of Jesus, but I've just lived this way for so long, I've just accepted that that's how it's going to be. It doesn't have to be. The way of Jesus is beautiful and inspiring, but it's really hard to follow. It's costly. And the first step is to decide I'm willing to go there. He began the journey for me, but I have to decide every day I will follow Him. Can I also challenge you if you've been a disciple in your heart for many years, you love Jesus, admire Jesus in your heart, but your hands and feet have not gotten the message. Can I challenge you that to follow Jesus is more than a sentiment? It must be the full way that you live your life. So I'm going to leave you a little space and quiet to respond and reflect on your own. And then I'm going to ask the team to lead us in a couple more songs before we close. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.